BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, it's February, and there are some peak moments coming up on the shows. Uh, So first of all, not on Days of Our Lives until later in the month, because starting today, they're on a two-week break for Winter Olympics coverage. But there will be a lot to tune in for when it comes back, and certainly in the meantime, on the other soaps. So let's start with Bold and Beautiful, where Taylor will find out the truth about Deacon and Brooke's evening together and spill the beans to Ridge. Now, I am really excited to see this play out. We've had weeks of I Saw Grandma Kissing Santa Claus, so it'll be great to see how and if it all blows up in Brooke space. And then over on General Hospital, for people who love the idea of Mike slash Sunny and Nina, this week is for you. The two will finally make love. Yes, they will. So it happens when Sonny is convinced that his marriage to Carly is over, when he is led to believe that she is not going to show up for the big romantic gesture he planned for her on The Haunted Star. I spoke to Maurice Bernard, Sonny, for our preview of this big moment, and he talked about how, you know, Sonny would get rid of his lingering feelings for Nina if he could, but he can't. It's beyond his control. And I think once this pair has hit the sheets, it is safe to say that the drama is only beginning. So for Sunny Nina fans and Sunny Carly fans both, next week is going to be huge. And I don't feel like I have a horse in this race when it comes to who Sunny should be with, but I cannot wait to see the performances that I think we have in store for us. I think they're going to be epic. Oh, I am confident they will be. I mean, personally, I'm more of a Sunny Carly fan, but I'm also enjoying the fraught dynamic between them that we're seeing playing out now on screen. I mean, I can only imagine what's going to happen when this goes down. Uh, now, in other General Hospital news, Jeannie Francis is marking 45 years since she made her debut as Laura Weber, which is completely mind-boggling to me, but you spoke to her for an utterly fantastic feature in the new issue, and in case anyone listening doesn't know, Laura and Jeannie are basically the reason I watch soaps at all. I mean, I was so sucked in by the Luke and Laura story, but I just have loved following her journey. Um, You know, I felt Jeannie was so open in the piece with you, and it's really can't miss if you have been a fan of hers at any age. We had a conversation that I will remember for a long time, and I really appreciated her candor. Uh, You know, the Luke and Laura phenomenon was a magical time for soaps, and she does have a lot of fond memories of being at the center of that storm of fan interest and media attention and all of that. But at the same time, for her personally, 
Um, it was not always magical. You know, she was incredibly young. She was tasked not only with playing sensitive material, such as Laura's rape, but also going on talk shows to sort of defend GH's decision at the time to move forward with a romance between Laura and the man who raped her. And she said that when she looks back on it, she feels like she was living an adult life, even though she was chronologically a child, and that that's what happens with child actors. They start living a life that's sort of 10 years ahead of where they are in their emotional development. And she talks about still struggling with some of the confusion that results from that. But I have so much uh, admiration, true and genuine admiration for this woman. She is so strong. She is so talented. She is so real. And I can't think of anything more worth celebrating than the anniversary of one of the best decisions the show ever made, which was to hire her as Laura. Well, you know, I am on board for that. Uh, now, speaking of beloved soap vets, our guest today definitely falls into that category. It's Robert Newman, who delighted many fans, including Mara, as Guiding Light's Josh Lewis, but will be making his Genoa City debut as Ashlyn Locke next week. So let's check in with him and see how it's all going so far. Hi, Robert. Hello. Nice to see you both. It's been a little while. It has. So great yeah. to see you and to just be talking to you today and why we're talking to you. So in a very dramatic twist worthy of a soap opera, you'll be making your debut on February 9th as Young and Restless's new Ashlyn Locke. So tell us the story from your perspective about how all of this came about. Well, you know, it, it really came out of nothing. I mean, absolutely nowhere. I, uh, I was not looking for anything like this. I was not seeking anything like this. It started with a, a phone call a couple of weeks ago at eight o'clock uh, in Connecticut, uh, which, you know, arguably is five o'clock here. So that made sense. But, um, and it was just a real crazy weekend uh, with myself and my agent and uh, with my wife, Britt, who I think both of you probably know. And, um, uh, just a lot of really difficult discussions, you know, at first they wanted me for this amount of time, then they wanted me for this amount of time. And then I was like, well, maybe this amount of time. And so after the, by the time the weekend was over, we had reached this uh, agreement. Um, and next thing I knew, I think, so that was Monday afternoon, we finally kind of settled everything. And, and then I was on a plane on Saturday of that week. Um, so I had like, it was, it's interesting, I was thinking about this because I've told the story many times of how uh, when I was cast as Josh on Guiding Light, I, uh, I was in Michigan doing summer stock. I came to New York for what was supposed to be a few days, uh, auditioned for a soap opera, was offered the role, offered the screen test, got the role, and they gave me six days to go home to LA where I hadn't been in four months and moved to New York. Right here in this case, you know, nothing. I'm just not looking for anything. And, and, uh, and all of a sudden over a weekend, it's done. And I had roughly six days to, you know, do a thousand, thousand things that had to be done before I got on that plane and then get on the plane. And then by the following Tuesday, I was shooting my first scenes. And somewhere in there, I had a really lovely Zoom meeting with Josh and Tony and, uh, you know, they gave me, they, we spent at least an hour of that meeting, just uh, me getting the background of this character and understanding something about who he is and, uh, and what they're looking for. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm really intrigued by the role. Uh, it's very not Josh, which I like. 
uh, not so guiding light fans, please don't like have a heart attack. I'm, <laughs> I love Joshua, but it's nice to play other roles. Mm -hmm. And I do play a lot of bad guys these days. So, um, you know, I just feel he's a very, very complex kind of guy. A lot has happened to him in the short time he's been here in Genoa City. And uh, there's a lot of things to come, I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you go about trying to wrap your mind around a character who has been on the show, who does have established relationships and, you know, just trying to grasp all the things that you need to grasp to be able to walk in on day one and be competent. Well, first of all, those two were really helpful. Um, but, you know, every character I play has a past, has a history. So any play I'm researching, any musical I'm researching, those characters don't just begin to exist uh, in the first page of the first scene. They have existed well before that. So there's always this kind of looking back and you look, in that case, you're looking for hints throughout this already written and published script of what was this person's background. What We all find out what happened to uh, Sweeney, let's say. We know what happened back then. We know that you know, the judge and the beetle, you know, did this and he went off to prison for 15 years and now he's back. So we, so we know a lot about everything that happened then. This is not really all that different. In fact, in a way, it was easier because I didn't have to do all the research to figure that out or make up because sometimes you also make up things that help you get through whatever scene you're in the middle of trying to rehearse. In this case, I had this wealth of information about what had happened to this character before this first page for me of walking onto the, onto the uh, scene in Genoa City and beginning my journey with him. Well, how would you describe your first day? Tell us what it was like. It was just filled with a lot of, um, I guess I had a lot of anxiety going on, but um, you know, I, had, I have a whole bag of tricks. <laughs> uh, some of them technical tricks to help me work through dialogue and some of them just tricks of being entertaining and fun and funny because you know it's kind of what I do for a living so um, you know I, and it's not as if I'd been sitting around for the last is it 12 years now for Guiding Light almost yeah it's not as if I've been sitting around there not doing this you know I've been working through four to five plays a year almost every year in different parts of the country I've been doing guest spots and then, of course, uh, auditioning, which in today's world now, you, they, there's an expectation that you memorize dialogue in auditions. That expectation didn't exist 20 years ago, but it exists now. So my mind has been churning through all this kind of stuff anyway. And um, so the first day, I probably did more work on that first day than I did on the script I just shot today, about three weeks later. So, uh, uh, but, you know, I wanted to really over prepare for the first few days and, and they shot me right out of the cannon with, uh, five episodes in three days Wow! Uh, because they were making up for, um, for uh, Victoria to be, was away for a few days and, and now she was back. And, uh, so, uh, you know, it was, it was a little bit, uh, frantic a little bit terrifying and very exciting at the same time. And everybody here honestly could not have been more gracious and patient and lovely. It was a really astonishing first day and then an astonishing first week. Well, uh, as is sort of your 
trend. You, your, your wife on the show has a couple daytime Emmys on the shelf. Uh, it is Amelia Heinley who plays Victoria. Uh, what has she been like to collaborate with thus far? She's fantastic. Of course she's fantastic. You know, I mean, in a way I thought it might be more, a little more tricky for her, you know, cause she's been working with another person, an entirely other human being for a period of time who has different, uh, you know, rhythms and, and methods and uh, ticks and whatever, uh, and still has to somehow figure out I, I had a conversation with both josh and tony and then actually she and i spoke uh amelia and i spoke um i think at like the day before or something like that about just a few things over the phone um because you know she also had to pick up on this relationship that apparently is based in love and it had to happen right now you know uh, that reminded me a little bit of when uh, we lost Laura Wright and we had Nicole Forrester literally the same day. I, you know, uh, we had finished an episode with Laura in a car locked in a garage. And the next episode picked up with Nicole in the car in the garage. And, and we just went straight forward. Now, that wasn't a love relationship, at least at that time. Uh, but still, it was just that sort of thing that happens where you've got a different person, different rhythms, different ideas. So, uh, so she, Amelia, had to deal with that too. But uh, again, um, it's clear to me why she's won a couple of Emmys, and she's she's just really, really good at what she does. And uh, we just played, leaned as far as we could into the relationship and into the uh, business side of things. You know, it's my nature to focus more on the relationship of characters than on the other stuff. Uh, and I think in this case, that's even true for Ashlyn to a certain extent. He's a businessman through and through, but I think this relationship with Victoria is real. And I think it's changed this world and he's trying to navigate through something he doesn't perhaps even understand. And that's my sweet spot. I love stuff like that. Now, the last time you were on the podcast, you joked about how you were sure if you landed back on a soap, it would be as a bad guy, since that has been your trend in recent years <laughs> that you mentioned. I don't remember um, that now, conversation, but sure. I would, <laughs> it sounds exactly like something I would say. Um, now, Ashlyn may not be a straight up bad guy, but there are certainly shades of gray there. So give us your take, and it's admittedly early, on where you think Ashlyn falls on the morality spectrum. As you guys probably recall, I never bought into the idea of Josh as a good guy. Mm -hmm. I always just said, and I would say this to the writers, as new writers that would come in, I would say, don't put him in a box and make him just a good guy who does the right thing all the time. I, I want to be challenged with something that's a little more, you just said it, in a gray area, where even in his attempts to be a good guy, he often will do the wrong thing. Uh, just think of him as a guy a guy who makes choices, makes decisions, and there are consequences. And sometimes he knows the right path and sees it clearly, the healthy path, but over here is a whole other path that he knows is kind of problematic, but very enticing. And, you know, and this is what we do in life. We, we often choose that other path and walk down there and then things happen, there are consequences, and then we try to find our way back to a healthier path. That's how all of us work in our lives. So to me, Ashland is a businessman through and through. The term ruthless business 
businessman, I think is the most overused phrase in casting history. There are hundreds of roles that I've looked at and the breakdown says ruthless businessman. And I'm like, well, what does that really mean? You know, I have this theory, uh, Eric and I talked about this the other day. I have this idea that um, anybody who gets to that level, when you're at the multimillionaire billionaire level, you have probably done a lot of ethically questionable things to get there. You know, maybe you're a nice guy. I think Bill Gates looks like a really nice guy, but I don't know what his journey was. And here you go, here's a reference. I was thinking about Oliver Warbucks in Annie. Mm -hmm. So he has this great speech to Annie where he's talking about how he grew up, you know, in Hell's Kitchen and uh, made my first million. And then in 10 years, I turned that into a hundred million. And boy, it wasn't that a lot of money in those days. And, and, he, and he says, at one point he says, you don't have to worry about the people you meet on the way up if you're not coming back down again. <laughs> and I think this is a bit of, and, and Warbucks is certainly not a bad guy, right? I think this is a little bit of Ashlyn Locke. I think that he is doing everything, initially, I think he was doing everything he could to, I guess, save his company, but also to make the best deal he could make to make, to gain more power, which I think is the first thing that these guys look for, and then more money, which I think is actually the second thing that they look for that kind of comes with the power. But the monkey wrench for him now is Victoria. I think the unexpected thing that happened in his scheme was to fall truly in love with somebody. And now he's managing his way through this relationship. Well, speaking of Eric, uh, as in Eric Braden, who plays your father-in-law and someone that many people would describe as a ruthless businessman, Victor Newman. Um, you had told me, Robert, that you'd been a Rat Patrol fan and that you uh, had had a nice conversation with him at a daytime Emmys, but this is of course the first sustained time you've been around each other. So tell us about getting to spend time with the great Eric. He's been, he's been so gracious to me. You know, I mean, there's a lot of ways this could go, you know, uh, I don't know uh, Richard at all who played the role. I don't know anything about him but I know he worked here and people liked him a lot. And suddenly you're dealing with another person entirely. And that could be, that could be a very difficult thing, right? For a lot of people. But Eric, uh, I think we bonded almost immediately when we started talking about stage work, when we started talking about Shakespeare, we started talking about all kinds of things that really didn't have anything to do with, with, um, with Victor or Ashland. <laughs> uh, and we talked about, but, but we did talk about this idea of millionaires and billionaires and things like that. And, um, you know, I just, I have such tremendous respect for him as an actor and to be on the same stage with him working through a role like this, I will tell you without giving the story away, we shot a scene last week that was on his part, a master's class in, in performance. It just was, it was astonishing to see where he went from, reading just quick quickly reading through things and blocking to the final tape where he went to 10 different levels and it was fantastic i think we're both very much in agreement that these men are not only equals in stature but they're cut from the same cloth and i've actually tried to emphasize this a little bit in some of the scenes we've had together that we we are there's a lot of questionable things you've done too right that idea victor and 
if, if tables could be turned tomorrow and these two characters could trade places entirely and he could be playing the bad guy and I could be playing the noble guy, you know, the father who's trying to defend his daughter, which I totally understand. So I think we're just bonding on a level of a couple of old guys on a soap opera, you know, doing some nice work together. And they've given us some really good, strong material to play off of each other with. And it's just a joy. He's just a very, uh, I'm just really happy with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he's just been super, super supportive and lovely. Well, you've been friends with Peter Bergman, who plays Jack for many years. So can you tell us how that friendship started? Uh, just on the whole circuit of uh, appearances and stuff. I, I know that uh, he and his wife and uh, Britt and I have sat at tables together and just enjoyed each other's company and chatted for, you know, not just a few minutes, but, you know, a couple hours, that kind of thing. And um, and then we sort of bonded a little bit too when the union was merging, the two unions were merging and I was on the board of directors and, uh, there were things happening out here and, and we had several conversations around that. And, uh, again, and I, and he beat me out for an Emmy, which, and I remember being happy about that because I'd, I'd much rather lose to someone I respect and someone I actually know and like mm -hmm. than whatever the other thing is, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, Stranger uh, you hate, uh, I, I'm not going to say that you could say that, but you know, <laughs> I was happy for him that night. I really genuinely was. And I told him so later, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and he was one of the first calls that came my way when I was cast, you know, I started getting sort of, little texts and things from people that I know that, cause they really hadn't announced it right off the bat. Um, but they had talked to some people here about it and he was one of the first to reach out. We had a very long conversation, um, on the phone before I came here. We've had another one on the phone since I, since I got here. And then just the other day we sat in his dressing room for a while and he's just, you know, he's just kind of checking up on me, seeing how I'm doing. I mean, they all know I've been down this path before and, uh, but, I think we all can relate to, wow, I haven't done this particular work for a decade, you know, getting the cobwebs out of there and remembering what it's like to shoot, you know, 20 to 25 pages every day. And sometimes twice that because you, tomorrow I'm shooting two shows, for instance, you know, and, and it takes a certain amount of technique and courage and stupidity to think you can do that. And you just dive in and you go. What has been like the hardest part about the reacclimation to this very specific way of working as you mentioned you've been memorizing other things but there's nothing quite like the brand new script every day that you're do that you do in this genre well it's helpful if you like it the the writing and the and i do i very much like the way this character is being written you know uh and i like that they're open to me taking chances you know uh, Josh and I specifically talked about my love for things that happen that aren't on the page. And I'm not talking about necessarily rewriting dialogue. I'm talking about, I love for there to be enough room for something surprising that no one expected. And this happened quite a bit for me and Kim. It would happen a lot. Not everything that Kim and I did together was premeditated. It happened, it's happened a couple times since I've been here and they're open to that here. And, and I'm really trying to shape how I want this character to be with 
my voice and my body and my mind and my heart and all those things that you pour into a, any character you play. And it's going to be different than what somebody else did. I do this on stage too, you know. I mean, you can connect any stage role to any great performer, right? Uh, you know, I, I, I saw and listened to Len Carew my whole life playing Sweeney. But I had to forget everything I ever knew about Len's performance because he, he's him. I can't do that. More specifically, playing Edna in Hairspray, if I tried to copy, copy Harvey, who I know and is uh, sort of a passing friend of mine, uh, it wouldn't work. I got I to gotta do that my way. And, and here with this character, it's the same thing. I've got to figure out in, in, in my voice and my body. Well, Mara talked to you at the end of your first week, and now we're at the end of your third week. So how would you describe sort of where you were then to where you are today? Today, everything is about getting settled in an apartment that I spent my first night in last night. <laughs> the show is kind of, uh, it's happening at the same time, but I've got a bunch of stuff being delivered. I've got a bunch of stuff I've got to unpack. I've got some things I've got to put together. I've got... I had to find the place. I had to settle on a place. I had to go through all the nonsense that everybody else goes through to just to get, you know, approved. There was a funny moment with them where they said, well, okay, so uh, we'll need six months of pay stubs. And I went, uh, no. And they were like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm sure you have other actors in this building, uh, you know, but uh, that's not the way it works. You know, I can tell you, I, I shot on an Apple TV Plus series about three weeks ago. I can tell you, well, that was then. I can tell you I spent 12 weeks in Michigan doing four musicals and one play. And I can tell you that I shot on a, uh, a Netflix series before, you know, before that for a couple of days. I can tell you that I did nothing in 2020 because actors didn't, couldn't do anything in 2020. But my wife is a big interior designer makes a boatload of money. <laughs> and... I have this contract and it's going to make me a lot of money. So, you know, but all those things that we all, you know, I was just thinking last night because I'm in the apartment last night for the first time, I put together the couch, which also very super cleverly Ikea style comes in, turns into a bed, okay. not in a traditional bed, but like, it's really fantastic. And, uh, and I spent all this time putting it together, which was supposed to be a two person job, but I did it by myself because that's what I do. And, uh, and there I was sleeping on the couch with this, this, this litter of everything else around me and no other actual furniture except a couple of things in boxes. And I'm like, man, nothing's changed since college. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's been, you know, really consuming my days. Uh, the minute I walk out of the studio, it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's Costco and, and uh, Ikea and Target and uh, Home Goods and all these places that are like, and then Britt, my wife, is spending all this time basically designing the apartment for me, which is, you know, I'm like, wow, I've got this like high-end designer in Connecticut <laughs> for me. Isn't this fantastic? So you know people. it's really been a thing. And uh, in terms of the show, it's, it's I, I can't for a second uh, let my guard down, you know, I, I don't want to find myself uh, less prepared than I need to be to tackle any scene. Uh, so when I'm done with you guys here, I'm probably going to go do about another two hours of stuff for the apartment. And then I will focus in on the uh, two shows I have to shoot tomorrow, which I've already focused on and looked at, but I need to 
go to the next step of the process, which is laying the foundation. It's funny, I, I, I had mentioned to the people I was staying with, I said, yeah, well, I started this morning with, uh, this was the, the other day, I said, yeah, I started this, this morning memorizing about 30 pages of dialogue. And she was like, oh, can you recite it right now? And I said, no, <laughs> no, that's not how it works. You know, you, <laughs> you, you get it in your head and then you deal with it one scene at a time when you're on the set and actually shooting things. It's not all magically there, you know. Uh, so I feel, uh, I'm feeling uh, more and more confident in the character, but I'm trying to stay this side of, I don't want to feel cocky about it in any way. I just want to keep exploring all of these nuances to this really surprisingly complex man. Uh, again, my sweet spot. I like playing people who have all kinds of different things going on at the same time, and Ashlyn certainly does. Mm -hmm. Well, Robert, uh, as many times as I've interviewed you, and as big of a Robert Newman fan as I am known to be, far and wide, I don't think I've ever actually asked you how you discovered your interest in acting. Well, I've told that story before, but um, maybe not to you, which surprises me because we have a we have a different kind of relationship, which where we've shared lots of things together over the years. And I and I appreciate you and adore you, and you know that. I do. Um, Ditto. I'm not sure if you know that it's mutual. Uh, uh, <laughs> so I was. I came from a big more or less dysfunctional family. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was very young and uh, there's been multiple splits throughout my family over the years. And a lot of family secrets that have, you know, like, you know, reared their ugly heads. And, uh, and I've always been sort of the, um, I'm the only one who talks to everybody. And uh, I've always been, tried to be more or less the peacemaker throughout my family. So all of that leads up to my, uh, going into college, looking to a psychology degree. I wanted to be a psychotherapist of some kind and uh, specializing specifically in family dynamics um, because that's, I, it was a journey to really understand what I had come from and then to somehow work towards what I wanted to become. And, um, and in my late second year, so probably the second semester of my second year at Cal State Northridge in California, I took an acting class just on a whim, uh, basically to get three credits in uh, whatever that category was. And, and as I started to work through these characters and, uh, and started to read Tennessee Williams and Eugene O'Neill and Edward Albee and even Shakespeare himself, I began to understand that these guys were all writing about family dynamics and all writing about dysfunction. And, and, uh, and I started kind of making this turn of going, well, this is a way I can pursue this particular topic that's fascinating to me and I'm driven to. And uh, it's just different than sitting across from somebody and being a therapist, which I still find myself doing all the time anyway. But, uh, and I certainly had my, share of therapy, but, um, and, and weirdly the soap even sort of played into that. It just did, you know, cause the guiding light in particular was so focused on family dynamics. And so my relationship with Billy and with HB and with Reva and with Trish and with, you know, Mindy and, you know, these all, and my own children on the soap with Mara and Shane, these all sort of continually played into this dynamic. 
And the upside was there was nothing they could throw at me on guiding light that was jarring. It was all like, okay, whatever, <laughs> you know, amateurs. Because <laughs> nothing, nothing shocked me. Well, maybe the clone storyline shocked me, but nothing really shocked me, you know, in terms of like the family dynamics of things that would happen. Because in a way, I just kind of seen it all, you know, and it was just, a, it, I don't know, it, deeper in a deeper psychological sense, it could be a sense of sort of replaying my own stuff just in, through a different character's eyes. And there's also this piece of me, um, as you both know, I'm quite introverted by nature. And um, sometimes I see it as an, a, a wonderful way to take a break from being myself for a period of time. I think Ocean Wells said something like that, that actors get a, a fantastic break from being them, themselves for a couple of hours, eight times a week, you know? And I, I like being, I like stepping into other characters and being different people. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also take all of the, other stuff that makes me who I am and my own past and bring those into whatever character that I'm playing. And almost and every character I approach that way. I approach from a deep psychological study of, of the background of what makes this person tick. That's great. Including this one I'm playing right now. Mm -hmm. Well, you were really just starting out as a professional actor when you were cast as Josh Lewis on Guiding Light in 1981. So can you put into words, you know, how quickly and how much your life changed when you landed that job? Well, I was a terrible actor. <laughs> I, I went back and, you know, uh, I saw the first scenes I was in and I was like, eh. and then saw later scenes from those first couple of years. And it was like, God, man. You know, and I would put myself in the context of um, somebody like, uh, uh, like Jonathan on the show. Um, Tom Palfrey. Yeah, Tom. And I look at somebody like Tom and I'm like, there's a, a guy who is a natural at all of this. I don't know that he even ever had to learn anything. And he's just so, and, and I imagine that's how Jordan Clark and probably Justin Dees were from the beginning of time. You know, but what I saw in myself, and I think maybe because I started acting later in my life compared to what people do now, now they're like two, <laughs> you know, um, I, I was doing a production of Annie and I was, there was this little 10 year old playing Annie and she said, yeah, I just don't want to get typecast. And I'm like, really? Really? As what? A 10 year old? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You should really play more 50 year olds because, you know, you don't want to get typecast. Uh, perhaps closer to what you're asking about was, yes, my life changed dramatically. And yes, I was suddenly being yelled at by people across the subway platform that I didn't know and told to stay away from Morgan and, and leave her alone. And Kelly's going to kill you and all these things. And I was like, I was, to be honest, I was a little, uh, dumbfounded by all of it at first. And I, and I often look back on those earliest days and think, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I was really good at handling fans in those days. I, I don't know that I was. And um, in fact, I'm not sure I was anyway as an adult, but um, now that I think about it, but I just, uh, I didn't get it. And then later in life, I began to get it in a different way. I began to understand that these, uh, these characters are characters that people love and adore. And, uh, and I know you and I've talked about this before, but um, you know, the, when people stop me, I know that forever they're going to say, yeah, I met that guy who played Josh Lewis and, you know, was on The Young and the Restless now. And they can either say, what an asshole. Or they can say, God, he was the nicest guy I ever met. And that's almost exclusively up to me. 
I mean, I've had very few encounters where no matter how sort of nice I am to people, it still somehow ends badly. And that's just the way it goes. But, um, you know, but for the most part, it's, it's my choice. And then I also am very thankful that, you know, I've said this many, many times, if without them, I don't have any, I, I don't have a living, you know, I don't have a job, I don't have a purpose without the people who actually watch the show. It's, there's no reason for it to exist that people don't watch the show. So uh, my catch line for everybody I meet is thank you for helping put my kids through college. <laughs> and I mean it, yeah. you know, I'm generally thankful for that. As far as an acting, as far as the bad actor goes, I made it my uh, mission in the first couple of years to focus on uh, one or two actors. Chris Bruneau was one. Uh, Tom O'Rourke was one. Bill Rourke was one. Charita was one. Uh, where I would honestly, I would go into the studio and watch them work on scenes that I wasn't in. And they were also very open to people sitting in the, in the, um, control room at that time and I would and I would go sit in the control room and I would watch from that perspective and that taught me a, a lot because I don't I the first time I ever acted in front of a camera was my screen test for Josh I was specifically trained trained for the stage so I had to learn a lot of other things it's just a different technique mm -hmm. um Sharita who you just mentioned Sharita Bauer who played Bert Bauer on the show starting in its radio years and then moved to television Josh had a really memorable encounter with her uh, shortly before she passed away in real life when Josh was paralyzed and Sharita, who uh, recently had her leg amputated as Bert sort of um, tried to uh, counsel Josh and lift him up and remind him that life is a miracle. And people still remember those scenes with such fondness. Do you remember that day? And I, I, I almost have never spoken to anyone about Sharita and I, would just love to hear what it was like to be around her. Well, I remember the scene because, you know, part of what we remember is, is, is uh, reinforced because we see it. You know, I've seen that scene many times in the last years, last few years. Um, but Charita, you know, uh, she was funny as can be. And just so her technique, her presence, her approach to the work, was so real and so honest. Uh, but she never made it like taking, taking herself so seriously that, you know, that can kind of wear you out sometimes, you know? Um, and she was one of the, one of my, what I think of as my earlier mentors. I've always talked about Larry Gates as being my, my main mentor of, of, of my life, at least in daytime. And, uh, Charita though, um, I, I, all I could do is learn from her and learn and learn and learn. And she just, she treated me with great respect. And, uh, I, that means everything, you know, when you have somebody like that and they, uh, they treat you at least when the cameras, uh, when the red lights on, they treat you almost as an equal. That's just an amazing gift. Mm -hmm. And she trusted me. And, uh, and those scenes were, were, I do remember those scenes. I, you know, very well. I remember I was so happy we were shooting those scenes because it was, I knew it was going to be kind of a iconic moment between these two characters. And we really didn't have much else together, you know, but I knew this was going to be a, a, a pristine kind of single episode deal for these two characters, maybe multiple, I don't remember, but 
moment for these two characters. And uh, I was thankful for that. I really was. Mm -hmm. Well, anyone who watched Guiding Light and anyone lucky enough to catch you and Kim Zimmer together on stage would say there's a definite and special kind of chemistry between the two of you. Uh, where would you, where do you think that comes from? Because obviously if everyone had it, everyone would be a super couple. <laughs> I think it's trust. I think the primary ingredient is trust. Um, Kim and I also both, when the red light was on, we both believed the story. And I think that's everything also. I mean, kudos to the writers and to Pam Long and to Doug and all these people we've talked about, but, you know, I don't know why Josh and Reva are different than any other couple, you know, in daytime. I don't know what makes a couple like really special. I know when I think of all the relationships, Josh, I, I worked with some powerful actresses, female actors, sorry. Uh, and, but I know that there was, with all of that work, there was something that was a different level between Josh and Reva that in, in fact did have a lot to do with Kim and Robert. And, you know, we've done several plays and musicals together. We were just in Mamma Mia together, although we were on sort of different tracks. Um, we saw each other at curtain call, basically. Uh, but, you know, one of the greatest experiences I think I've ever had as an actor was uh, a little 120-seat house on the island of Nantucket doing uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Kim. And uh, it was such a... Uh, a marriage of our own personal relationship to each other over the years, which I think she would also say was, is a love hate relationship, you know, and uh, we can drive each other absolutely crazy sometimes and then love each other completely other times. And then the relationship between Josh and Reva, which is similar. And then we poured all of that into George and Martha and she was just knocked that thing out of the park completely. And, uh, and it was really, uh, and it's, there are some plays that, some roles that can change you as an actor. And uh, that play shifted me as an actor, I would say. It, it, it made me a better actor. And uh, doing it with her, with our own background was really something. Cynthia Watros, who, uh, of course, as Annie rather famously came between Josh and Reba in the 90s and is now Nina on General Hospital, yeah. she was a huge Josh and Reba fan when she joined Guiding Light. And she's told me how surreal it was for her to be working with you uh, two, and especially like in a triangle with these two people that she'd watched on television when she, you know, joined the show. Uh, so that's obviously something that stands out to her about the experience. What stands out to you about uh, working with Cynthia? Cynthia was just fantastic. I mean, you know, Cynthia is just not like anybody else I know, <laughs> really. You know, she's so unique. And, uh, and she leaned so far into the madness of Annie uh, in a very playful way and, and a very, but always grounded in reality. You know, she's really a, a really super gifted actor. And, uh, um, I, you know, that storyline was complicated. It was difficult. Uh, it's, it's funny. It's one of those that I remember was not terribly popular when it was happening. But it's because I remember back then we were getting fan mail and I remember all these letters that were just, you know, people were just so upset and angry about uh really kind of the Annie Reba relationship, I think more than anything else. 
And, uh, and Kim herself, I think she just, she's talked about that was sort of challenged by, uh, you know, when, when you're working against sort of the bad guy, you've got to be the one that, uh, gets duped from time to time. And that's very hard for a lot of people to, to play. Uh, but, um, there was a dynamic there, uh, that was just an exciting time. I would say the same thing about Michelle Forbes and, uh, and Joe Breen and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that was a pretty pristine time, mm -hmm. that particular storyline with Annie. Mm -hmm. You know, when they tried to revisit it later with another actor playing the character, it, and we had the whole complication of the mind control drug, which was just like, bleh. <laughs> but, you know, um, that was a special time. And, and Cynthia was part of what made it special. The whole daytime community was very saddened at the end of last year by news of Lisa Brown's unexpected passing. Uh, she was, of course, playing Nola on Guiding Light when you first started on the show. So what comes to mind when you think of Lisa? Well, she and Michael, Tylo, you know, I mean, yeah. both of them. Uh, uh, Lisa, you know, Lisa was already a force to be reckoned with when I came onto the show, but she was part of the, the younger story, you know, part of the one that I, the story that I walked into. And uh, she was clearly the, top dog in the, I don't mean that in any kind of pejorative way. I just mean that Nola was like a big thing. And then Quentin Nola were like this bigger thing. And when I think of Lisa, I smile because I think about all the fantasy things they did with Quentin Nola. And, and then later, and I posted about this on Facebook after she died, that, you know, seeing her on in 42nd street on Broadway. And, you know, it, it was a little bit like when I saw Laura Belmonte for the first time, you know, on Broadway, I think in hairspray. And then later, in uh, Legally, Legally Blonde. Blonde. And, you know, when you see people that you work with in this daytime world, and then you see them in this entirely other context, and you're like, oh, my God, I didn't know you could do this. Uh, you know, and she was fantastic. You know, it's just, Lisa was just always 100% in. Always in 100%. And I have, I, I have great respect for that in anybody. This is obviously, as, as you know, your first foray back into daytime since Guiding Light went off the air, but certainly not uh, been a stranger to television in the intervening years. And you've been on so many different primetime shows and streaming shows, Chicago Fire, House of Cards, NCIS, just name a few. Um, is there a primetime gig that you've done since Guiding Light uh, took its leave that was particularly fun for you or memorable for you or you were particularly happy to be a part of? Uh, Homeland, I was pretty happy to be a part of. And, but the real joy of Homeland was um, we had a, a power outage one day and uh, Mandy Patinkin and I sat uh, and talked about um, Broadway and musicals. And I got the chance to say to him how you know, he actually played a bit of a part for me in doing what I do now, uh, because way back in 1980, I went with my college buddies in, at CSUN to New York to see like five plays in four days or whatever. And one of them was Evita. And, uh, and watching him as Che in Evita, in fact, I went back the next day by myself and watched it again, not really for the show, but just to watch this one particular person work. And yes, Patty Lapone was on the show too, but really it was like that, that really, and it was a moment of like, I want to do that, you know, and it 
was a lot of years before I was doing something similar to that, but I want to do that. And, and so we had that conversation and then talked a lot about uh, the difference between television and stage and things like that. And, and that was just, uh, I'll never forget that conversation. A lot of respect for him and a lot of, and a lot of good people on that show. Um, you know, nighttime, it's funny for me because God, this, I got to be careful about this. Um, it's hard when you come in and just play a one episode guest spot on a nighttime show because you really don't have the luxury of finding the history of a character or developing a character. You just have to come in and just do the thing you're hired to do. Uh, and they're all doing the thing they do. I've, I've always wondered how people felt about working with us on Guiding Light who would just come in for a day, mm -hmm. you know, because in nighttime with these, you know, I might work over the course of a week or just a couple of days, but you, you kind of know you're, you're jumping on this train that's already moving at a thousand miles an hour with actors that are moving a thousand miles an hour. And you're just a piece of this one moment that they have to get past to get to the next piece. And you never lose that feeling. I also get impossibly bored on nighttime sets because well, Homeland's an excellent example. Uh, I had one scene on Homeland that was uh, two of us walking and talking on a sidewalk for three pages, three and a half pages. And uh, they called me to the set. It was an evening shoot down in uh, Charleston, I think, outside of a restaurant. And they called me to the set at 6 p.m. And we wrapped that scene at 2 a.m., eight hours later. God. And I thought we would have shot 80% of a single episode in that period of time easily, if not an entire episode in that period of time. And, uh, you know, even theater moves faster than that, which is really saying something, mm -hmm. but I, I really thrive on working fast and furious. And as long as, uh, I'm able to make mistakes and, uh, I don't want to say ad lib, that's not the right word, but sort of rephrase things to get myself through to the next thing. Uh, uh, I just love working at this pace. It's it's my favorite way to work. Mm -hmm. And uh, and reshooting the same three-page scene 50 times over an eight-hour period just, you know, I don't drink anymore, but, like, where's the bar <laughs> back in those days, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, on a personal note, last year you celebrated your 35th wedding anniversary with your wife, Britt, who soap fans remember for her stint as Lily on Loving. Yes. So, Britt, tell us how you two met. Oh, she tells that story much better than I do. <laughs> you should really ask her. <laughs> we met. Uh, we met in L.A. It was one of the times that I had left uh, the show for a two-year period. The first time. So this was uh, 81, 82, 83. This is like 85, 86. And uh, I was in LA living at a house in Laurel Canyon, renting a house in Laurel Canyon, off Laurel Canyon. And uh, my, friend, my friend, Ted Warren uh, from college was having a Christmas party, but his house was having construction. So he asked if he could use my house and we did. And he had been telling me for quite a while about this woman that would be so perfect for me. And apparently he had been telling her the same thing about a guy, but she was like, What's he do? He's an actor. Yeah, no. He's like, and, and she was acting then. She was, you know, doing a more sort of independent kind of films then. And, uh, and so this party happened and uh, she came with her 14 year old brother that she was living with her at the time in LA. 
And as she tells it, I put him to work on making margaritas for everybody at the party. And, and uh, you know, the evening went on. We didn't really interact a whole lot. And uh, at the end of the night, we chatted for just a minute. And she was going off to what used to be Yugoslavia to do a film for uh, like uh, three weeks. And, uh, and somehow as she was leaving, I said to her, uh, maybe we should get together for dinner or something. And she, she tells it, she says, in my mind, I'm saying, no way, asshole. <laughs> and in her mouth, out of her mouth came, yes, I think I like that. And then we had like this little kiss on the cheek thing that actually kind of crept into another thing. And uh, as she tells the story, and you can confirm this with her, she, she says she walked out the door and turned to her brother and said, I think I might marry that man. And uh, we were married nine months later. And, uh, you know, it, not, not because of pregnancy. She, we, were, we felt fast and furious in love. My phone bill while she was in Yugoslavia was like through the roof. Because back then, you, we didn't have the luxury of cell phones. And, uh, and, and uh, we were planning the wedding. I, I proposed to her on my last day of work on Santa Barbara. And I had walking pneumonia, as did A. Martinez. We both ended up with walking pneumonia from shooting in, uh, at Marine Land and caves and whatever. I was trying to kill them both by throwing them into a shark tank or something like that. And... Uh, I, I sat on her lap, kind of straddled over her, proposed to her, and then I took a champagne cork thing, the metal, and I formed it into a ring and put it on her finger, which I replaced later with a, you know, a real ring. And she said yes. And then, um, and right before we got married, uh, we, I was going off to do a production of Picnic, the play Picnic at the Barn Theater, my old haunt. And we had dinner with the producer and his wife in L.A. And the producer, by the end of the meal, said, I think you should come out and play match to Brit. And so she did. So we had all these wedding things in place. We went off to do six weeks of theater. We came back. Half of those things had fallen through. And we had to work even faster and more furious. And then the wedding happened on September 27th, 1986. And, um, yeah, 35 years. It's amazing. Go figure. So our agents are talking right now and we're renegotiating to uh, <laughs> 35 years. Of work. So, yeah. Well, for over a decade of the 35, um, Britt has run her own interior design firm, as you, as you yeah. mentioned. Um, you told me that uh, you work with her on her business quite a I bit. Do. Um, what is your role in Britt Newman's <laughs> design concept? It's, well, it's not design. I'm, you know, significantly colorblind. So that would not be a good fit for me. <laughs> uh, we always joke about that because ironically, she's a color expert. That's part of what she does. She, in fact, you know, she's a, she's an expert in colors. Um, so believe it or not, I do a ton of bookkeeping for her on QBO. Uh, math has always been a weird thing for me that I adore. And uh, I, I guess it kind of makes sense because even the way I approach like the task of memorizing dialogue has something to do with everything coming together and fitting together and then having a, 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 a sum, an outcome, you know? So, so it's kind of the way my mind works anyway. And um, of course we did have to come, have an accountant come in recently to fix a whole bunch of stuff that I screwed up. So <laughs> that happened. And then also, you know, I grew up, my father owned here in LA, my father owned a bunch of apartment buildings. And from the time I was, 10 or 12, he started 
targeting me as the handyman who would fix everything that went wrong in his apartments. And then of course, by the time I was 16 and driving, I was that guy. And, and even when I began working in the theater, I was always drawn to building sets and it even co-designed sets and built sets and that kind of thing as I went along in my college years and later. Uh, so I also do a lot of stuff for Brit in terms of window treatments and lighting fixtures and putting together furniture and things like that. And I do, and, and I just do all this stuff that she just can't do. And that kind of stuff I don't do for her high end, you know, $10 million mansion Greenwich clients, but I do a lot of stuff for other clients who just are looking for ways to, and I always joke that she pays me in martinis and golf. <laughs> Is she hiring? <laughs> It's very funny you said that because part of the unintended consequence of me moving here for this period of time, she's staying there because she's got 10 projects she's got going right now, including two uh, uh, Fifth Avenue apartments in Manhattan. And uh, so part of the unintended consequences of something that's happening here is that she had to, for the first time, she's hiring, she just hired an assistant the other day because all, a lot of this, I'm still doing the books from here, but a lot of the stuff I used to do there, she just can't do anymore. Mm -hmm. She can't do it all. She's a one person thing. And now she's one person with a system. <laughs> <laughs> she's impossibly talented. I cannot tell you the way she has changed people's lives through her work as a designer. It's just phenomenal. And people tell her all the time uh, how they made her life, she made their lives completely different, you know, in spaces they might've lived in for 20 years, but never saw the potential for it beyond what it is. And she comes in, she blows out walls and she creates these great rooms and spaces and these colors and these fabrics. And it's just really something to see. It's really amazing. It really is. Well, I'm sure your apartment's going to look great when she's done with it. Um. <laughs> well, she's actually flying in next week because uh, next week I will, all the furniture will be there and built because I'm building half this furniture, not building, it's a putting together, but um, all that will be in. So when she's here in a week, I'm not buying any like uh, artwork, artwork or, or tchotchkes or, you know, things to sit on shelves. She's going to come in and do all that. Nice. <laughs> and so by the time she leaves, it'll be like a model. Like, like, like it's like staging right she has a whole part of her business that's called staging to stay because she's found that when people hire her to stage for selling they suddenly love their house entirely so wow. rather than getting to that point where you're ready to move she's she has clientele that come to her to stage as if they're going to sell and that changes everything so smart yeah, it's quite clever. I'd like to see that on HGTV. I would so watch that. I think we have a show concept. Yeah. No one can steal it. We're talking about it now. Okay. There, we do have a friend who's a director who talked to us once, but he, he wanted the angle of her husband being a soap opera star. And we were like, eh, <laughs> not so much. Yeah. Now, still accurate. Um, but, well, before we let you go, is there anything you want to say to the YNR fans, some of whom may know your work, some of whom may not, but I'm sure we'll be very interested in getting to know your version of Ashlyn, which started. I just said in a post, just be gentle. <laughs> you know, it's my first time. Just be gentle. You know, it's like, I, I, I know that for some people, this will be a jarring change. And, um, and I get that and I feel your pain. Uh, but the business is the business and you know, things, things shift and change. I'm hoping that I'll, um, 
uh, find a version of this character that eventually you'll warm to and appreciate. And uh, I will say, too, that I have always had tremendous respect for this show. Uh, from my years of judging for, uh, I almost always judged in the category of best show and best performance by, well, now we would say best performance by a female actor. And uh, so between seeing those lead, so between watching those performances uh, of the women on this show and then watching full episodes, even just a single full episode. And when you, when you judge, you're watching in the context of all the other shows too. And YNR has always been crisp and clean and smart. And also I think very family driven as we were on Guiding Light. So I've always felt like this would be a good fit for me. And uh, so far, yeah, feels like it. We'll see. And back of course, they could fire me after 13 weeks, so, you know, there's that. <laughs> I'll have to answer to me if they do. <laughs> me too. <laughs> well, it was so great to talk to you. We Thank are you. so excited to see your first air date and just to see what you do with the character of Ashlyn. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing all your stories. Thank you, and I adore you both. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Robert Newman for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.